All right, church family, hope that you have brought your Bibles with you. If you can, take them out. And it's my fault, but the notes are wrong. So I'm telling you, it was just a test to see if you brought your own Bible. It's John 16, not John 6. Um, they will be correct up here. First service was not as lucky. I want to give you a couple of things of information real quick before we dive into this. When this is all over today... There's going to be some of you that go and pick up boxed lunches outside the Fellowship Hall that you purchased for today to help raise money for our students and kids going to camp this summer. So this is that day. Don't forget to pick that up if you've uh, reserved those boxes. If that's not you and you think, hey, a pulled pork sandwich sounds pretty good and I love to give my money to teenagers going to camp, you can go over there. They do have some extra, I've been told. I don't know how many extra, and there might need to be some sort of a race to see who can get there first. But if you would like that, you are welcome to go there and see if there are some left over. Good box lunch. It's $10. You can write a check or cash, whatever, over there. And uh, that money will go to help our kids and teenagers get to camp this summer. Also, at the end of the service today, at the end of my sermon we're going to be celebrating communion or the Lord's Supper. You should have picked up one of, these, one of these little units here with the elements all packaged together nicely for you. If you did not, would you raise your hand and someone will bring one to you right now. We've got some in the balcony, some in, in the floor. Mr. Danny's walking around up in the balcony. They've got some. Thank you guys for doing that. Parents, if you have a child in a class and that child has received Jesus, been baptized, they are part of God's family, and we want them to participate in the Lord's Supper with you. At the end of my sermon, I am going to pray, and Brian is going to come back and sing a song. During that time, we would want you to go to your kids' class, pick them up, and then bring them back in here so we can celebrate communion together, okay? So in case I forget to tell you, this is your warning. When I pray and Brian sings, you should be going to get your kid and come back. Okay? There's been a lot of famous partnerships throughout history. People that helped one another. Fictional ones like Batman and Robin, right? The Lone Ranger and Tonto, some of my favorite when I was a kid. Murtaugh and Riggs, if you watched the Lethal Weapon movies when you were younger. Actual historical people like Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, even bad partnerships were good partnerships. Michael Jordan has Scottie Pippen, right? Brian and Brooke Williams and trying to raise Ainsley and Braxton. Pretty good <laughs> partnership. One time it was Brian Williams and Jonathan Humphrey. I'll tell you, one of our traditions when we had our kids that were little, at Christmas time, Brooke would announce to me on Christmas Eve, basically, what she had bought our kids and what I needed to put together that day. <laughs> and oftentimes, it was something that could not be put together in one day. Okay, dads, if you know what I mean. One of those years, it was an entire playground set that needed to be put together on Christmas Eve. And in addition to being put together, somehow it had to be a secret. You know, it took up the whole backyard. I was very worried. I called John Humphrey. He showed up with a tool belt and a trailer, and I knew that we were going to be okay. I had a hammer, but... Uh, my friend took care of it. Partnerships are important. Sometimes the life objective is too difficult for one person, and, and they need help. And in our passage today, 
you know, Jesus is getting ready. We've been studying all month, getting ready to leave his disciples. And he has been trying to prepare them through this long conversation. And he's told the disciples what they're supposed to do when he's gone. Let's see, they're supposed to die to their self, obey all of his commands, love all the people who hate them, and tell everyone in the entire world about Jesus. You know, like if they could text, they would be sending Jesus the big eye emoji. You know, is that all Jesus? Um, they were going to need help. And if we jump ahead a few weeks later after Jesus' death and resurrection, one of his last conversations with the disciples, he said, hey, when I leave here in a minute, I want you to go find a room and just stay there. Don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit, the helper, comes. Why did he say that? Because he knew they would mess it up. I mean, a few weeks earlier, they couldn't even stay awake long enough to pray right before he was arrested. These guys were going to need supernatural help. And that's what we find in our passage today in John 16, not 6. The word we see today for the Holy Spirit in our passage is helper. It also carries the meaning of intercessor or advocate. And we don't have time today to do a full class on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but we need to kind of lay some groundwork because I know the Holy Spirit sometimes gets a bad rap, right? God the Father, God the Son, and then, you know, on a different level, God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we think that because maybe it's because we don't really understand. There's a lot of things we don't maybe necessarily understand about the Holy Spirit. There's maybe some confusion. So what I want to do today right before we start is just give you some things that we find in Scripture about the Holy Spirit. Number one, He is God. Holy Spirit is as much God as God the Father and God the Son. He is eternal, like they are eternal. He is omniscient. He is knowing all things. Only the Spirit can search the, the heart of God the Father. Okay? He is powerful. He has power that only God has. He was at work in creation, and He is at work in salvation. He is a person. He is spirit, but he is a person, not just some sort of force out there. And that person is God, just as fully and in the same way as God the Father and God the Son. So turn with me to John 16. Our passage today is verses 5 through 15. Read with me. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore, I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Can we pray? Father, as we dive into your word today, I pray your spirit is at work as we study your spirit, that he would help us to understand correctly your word, and that we would apply it to our lives, and that the Holy Spirit would be our helper as we move forward in trying to live out your ways and not our own. We love you, Lord. Thank you for grace. Amen. 
Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. This is the night that he is arrested, that all this conversation we've been studying this past month, this past month takes place. He's preparing his disciples for life after Jesus, basically. After he goes back to sit at the Father's right hand in his rightful place. And the disciples, they're wondering, hey, why you got to leave? Jesus knows. He says that sorrow has filled their heart. So part of this conversation is meant to be an encouragement for them. He, whether or not they understood exactly what was going to happen and where Jesus was going. The, the one thing they have to hold on to is that it's for their good that he's leaving. Jesus knows the future. You see, he can see around the corner and he knows that they're going to need help to accomplish all the things that he has tasked them with. And the Holy Spirit is the plan. He's the helper. Jesus isn't disciplining them, but this isn't unlike a parent who is disciplining a kid and says, hey, I'm just doing this for your good. Right? You ever say that, Dad? You know, the Dad can see around the corner. He knows what's coming in the future. He knows if he lets the kid get away with this one thing, it'll lead to more bad behavior, so we discipline them for their good. Well, Jesus isn't disciplining them, but he's saying, I'm leaving for your good, because I see around the corner. I know what's coming. And unless Jesus departs, the helper will not come to them. Not because Jesus and the Holy Spirit couldn't be here at the same time, but because that's been the plan since before God created the world. Jesus promises that when he does leave, he will send the helper. And so today, just in these verses, we're going to look specifically at the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit once he comes to be that helper. We find three specific things that Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit will do. The first one is that the Holy Spirit convicts the world. Look at verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Three things he will convict the world of. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The ruler of this world, Satan. The first thing he convicts the world of is its sin. He convicts the world of sin just because they don't believe in Jesus yet. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit did in your heart before you met Jesus? This convicting work, is, it's gracious. It's designed to bring the world to recognize their sin and their need for a Savior and in hopes that they would turn their face toward Jesus, the answer for their sin. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in all the world, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that... Whoever believes in him would not perish and have eternal life. The, the incarnation of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, all of it, the entire plan was for the purpose of saving sinful humanity. And now the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to continue that purpose by pointing out or showing us our sin, by convicting us of our sin. He exposes our sin. He shines light on those things that we think we do in darkness that are sin. He causes us to feel shame about our sins so that we will understand our need to be saved from our sin. And the Holy Spirit, He does this before salvation as well as after salvation, doesn't He? Before salvation, teenage Brian lived only for Brian. I don't even feel bad about doing bad things. Bad people do that all the time in the world, don't they? People kill people and don't feel bad about it. They still don't feel bad about it. They talk bad about people on social media, don't feel bad about it. Because the person without the Holy Spirit in their life, they're not convicted of that sin yet. But then at some point, if you were to be saved, the Holy Spirit will begin to massage your heart a little about. 
just to convict you of your sin, to say, as I look around in my life, everything doesn't seem to be at the standard of what God would have set for me. And I was 15 when that began to take place, and God began to work in my heart, and at some point I responded to an invitation where someone said, the answer is to turn to Jesus, because his death on the cross paid the price for that sin that you're now starting to feel guilty or shameful about. Doesn't take away all my sins. It wipes them out completely off the face of the earth. That's the good news. That's why we call it good news. Now, the Holy Spirit keeps working after we're saved. I, sometimes I wish He wouldn't. You know, I think, you know, it's enough that you saved me because my sin is forgiven, right? But now, part of our salvation is sanctification. And the Holy Spirit's job in my life is to clean me up, to help me begin to look more like God. And let me tell you, unlike our salvation experience, this doesn't happen overnight, does it? Anybody been a Christian a long time, still struggling with sin? Now, there might be something in your life that the day you come to meet Jesus, that immediately it stops or it starts, whichever way you look at it, and you're able to move on. But there's a lot of things like the looking like God that takes time. It takes time with the Lord. It takes time in His Word. It takes time with the Holy Spirit changing you so that the things you used to desire, you no longer desire. The greatest picture of God's love was Jesus hanging on the cross, dying for crimes and sins He did not even commit. And while he was up there looking at the people doing it to him, and he asked the Father to forgive them. I am not there. <laughs> but if I am to begin to look like God, the Holy Spirit will work and work and work until I begin to look more like him. That's his, that's his role in my heart now that I'm a believer. The Holy, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its sins. Secondly, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its righteousness. Now you say, wait a minute, Brian, isn't righteousness a good thing? Why would the Holy Spirit come to convict us of righteousness? Why would he point out and make us feel shame about the good stuff? And the answer is because the righteousness of the world is not even good at all, is it? Not held up, not when it's held up to the righteousness of God. Isaiah 64, 6 says that we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. Even our good deeds are filthy rags before the Lord. The world's righteousness is empty righteousness. One of Jesus' most prominent roles when he came was to, to show the emptiness of the world's light, uh, righteousness and to shine his light on what it was, truly. And if you think about it, the people he argued with most were who? Those who thought they were most righteous. Right? He wanted to shine a, heart, a light on their heart, on their motives. God judges our hearts on what's on the inside. The Holy Spirit's here to convict the world of that fake, empty righteousness. Christians, for us, this is what it looks like uh, for our righteousness to show up, is when we start comparing ourselves to other people. When we think we're right because we're not as wrong as someone else. We think we're right because, well, I might struggle with this, but at least I don't struggle with what she does or what he said. Right? That's fake righteousness. That's empty righteousness. It also shows up when we do good, righteous acts or deeds, but for the wrong motive. We give because we want people to know we gave. No. We look around, see if anybody's looking before we drop something in the offering box. Just, just need a little bit of a 
audience. We help because we want people to know that we helped, right? We post something on Facebook because we want people to think we're really ultra-spiritual. The Holy Spirit will convict us of this and help us to live with humility. So the Holy Spirit convicts the world of its sin and its empty righteousness. Thirdly, He will also convict the world of its judgment. In John 7, Jesus encourages the world to stop judging by mere appearances. We see that throughout the Bible, even in the Old Testament. God doesn't judge the outward appearance. He judges the heart. He knows our motives. True judgment comes from God. Jesus' judgment is right and true. The world's judgment is wrong and morally perverse. The world calls what is good evil and what is evil good. Have you seen that in the last week on TV? Did you know the Bible even warns us about that? In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's happening all around us these days. The Holy Spirit is here to convict the world of this incorrect judgment, which comes from Satan. He says that the ruler of this world has been judged. He's the prince of this world, and all false judgment is related to him who has always been a liar, and he cannot speak truth because his nature is to be a liar. John 8 says that if we echo the values of Satan, we are not the Lord's children, but we are Satan's children. When we call good evil and evil good, we are not of the Lord because we have false judgment. We said last week that if we uphold the scriptures and judge correctly, we will probably be opposed by the world. But better to uphold the scriptures and be opposed by the world than to deny the scriptures just so we'll be accepted by the world but end up being opposed to God. The world and everything in it is fading away, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Best to be on the right side of that. The Holy Spirit convicts the world. That's the first thing. The second thing we see today is that the Holy Spirit guides the disciples. And yes, Jesus is talking to a very specific group of men to, in this passage, but I think it's okay if you're, a, if you're a child of God today, you are His disciple. This is for us too. The Holy Spirit guides us. Look at verse 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will guide us into all truth. Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now the Spirit of truth comes being sent by the Father and the Son, and he leads the disciples into all truth, which means he leads them into the revelation of Jesus Christ. This really isn't talking about some kind of special guidance you know, making sure that you attend the right college, get the right career, and marry the right person. This is talking about guidance into understanding that God, as He has revealed Himself, and obeying His revelation. So what does this look like for you, Christian? The main way God has chosen to reveal Himself to us is through His written Word, this book, the Bible. The Holy Spirit was there helping the people write exactly what God wanted them to say. And the Holy Spirit is here helping me to understand it properly. Application. Read the Word. How many of you have ever tried to read the Bible and been discouraged because you were confused? I've been there. Here's what maybe no one ever told you. You have a helper. You see, you thought 
that all these people kept saying, read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible. And you thought it was all on you and your you know, intellect to be able to read it and understand it. And you were like, man, I had a 63 in reading in ninth grade. Okay? Reading and composition is not my strong suit. Okay? Give me some math. Give me some PE. Something that I can actually do. Okay? Not reading and understanding. But no one ever told you the Holy Spirit is here to help you. When the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in our heart and we open this word, there's a supernatural special thing going on. We are reading the very words of God that He wants us to see, that He's given for us. And His Spirit living in us will help us to understand. But here's the thing. you got to read it. I wish so bad that at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit's role would just be to poof and put all of the information that I needed into my head. It doesn't happen that way. We have to open His Word. A pastor named Louis Giglio, he says this. He said, those who hear God's voice best are those who know His Word most. You want me to say that again so you can write it down? Those who hear God's voice best are those who know His Word most. If you want to hear from God, if you want the Holy Spirit who lives in your heart to be active in your life, read His Word. And don't be discouraged. It's okay. But the more you read it, the more He will enlighten your mind to understand it correctly. I promise. I promise. It's happened in my life, and I wasn't a reader as a young person. But I know that when I read His Word, something special is going on, and I know that the Holy Spirit is at work to help me understand what He wants to declare to me. The Holy Spirit will guide us into His truth. Finally, the third thing is this. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus. Look at verse 14 and 15. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus by declaring only what is Jesus's. The Holy Spirit does not have his own agenda. The perfect triune God, the one God in three persons, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all perfectly unified in everything that they do. Jesus did not come to earth on his own accord to somehow talk God the Father into forgiving sins of humanity. God put that plan of salvation in place before he even created the world. And the Holy Spirit being sent to be our helper was part of that plan. Always be leery of someone who says, God told me, and then follows that up with something that is in contradiction to God's word. Okay? God, the Holy Spirit, working in your life will never tell you to do something, to say something, to act like something that is in contradiction to what God has already said in His Word. That makes sense. Because the Holy Spirit helped all these people write this thing. So why would He now tell you something that would be opposed to what He already had them write to us? Very, very easy to understand that. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And I believe He does communicate with us. It was just... A couple weeks ago that I told you the story about how I felt like God, the Holy Spirit, was working in my life in 1999, letting me know that one day I was going to be a part of, of His plan in planting a church. And then I told you that eight years later after that, I felt like the Holy Spirit was at work in my life when Sidney called and said, I think God wants us to plant a church. And the Holy Spirit was massaging my heart saying, this is what I was talking about eight years ago. But I do think that the most way 
that God speaks to us is through his revealed word. And the more we listen and obey him, the more our own life will glorify Jesus. Whatever he says will match up with God's written word, and that will glorify God's living word, Jesus, the Son of God. And we want our lives to glorify Jesus. Amen? We have to listen to the Spirit and what he's doing in our heart so that we will glorify Jesus. The Holy Spirit convicts the world, he guides the disciples, and he glorifies Jesus before we celebrate communion, the one thing I also want you to know is that the Holy Spirit is also that stamp or seal, our proof that we belong to the King. Ephesians 1.13, the Apostle Paul writes, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's like the king taking his signet ring and, and stamping an envelope so that when it was passed by, they would know that this was officially from the king. The Holy Spirit is that proof inside of you that you're the king's. He's that seal of approval, if you will. If the Holy Spirit does not dwell in your heart, you are not saved. This isn't something that happens later on if you get to like a certain level of Christianity, you get the Holy Spirit. No. God gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit when we trust in Him. If He does not dwell in our heart, you do not yet belong to the King. My question for you is this. Is it possible today that you walked in without that stamp of approval on your heart? Is it possible today that the Holy Spirit has been at work, even in our time studying the Scriptures, massaging your heart, convicting of your sin, and telling you, hey, the answer to your sin problem is to point your face to Jesus and accept His gift on the cross as payment for all your sin, past, present, and future. Lay down your life and live for Him instead and obtain abundant, eternal life. All you got to do is open the door to your heart and let Him in. Accept that invitation to die to yourself and live for God. It takes faith. The Bible talks a lot about that. Because we have to believe and trust when we know in our heart that we could never be good enough. Because that's what the Spirit does. He, he makes us feel shame for the sin in our heart so we know that we couldn't be good enough. So my faith is trusting that God's plan will work. God's plan of Jesus on the cross instead of me would work because he was the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God that could qualify to pay for all the world's sin. I'm going to say a prayer. And... Let me just say, before we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, that if that's you that I'm talking to right now, what a better way on Palm Sunday to celebrate your first communion as a Christian. Accept Him into your heart now. Allow His death on the cross to pay for your sin. And then celebrate communion by remembering what He did for us and that you are now part of God's family. Parents, as I pray... Hey, look, this is great timing. If you've got a kid who's not old enough to run in here on their own, go, and that kid has accepted Christ and been baptized, we want them to participate in this really special thing that we do as a family of God. So go get them right now. Brian's going to lead us in a song, and then I'll come right back.
mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect holy one crushed your son you drank the bitter cup reserved for me your blood has washed away my sin Jesus thank you the Father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus thank you one sure enemy and now seated at your table Jesus thank you by your perfect sacrifice I've been brought near your enemy you've made your friend pouring out the riches of your glorious grace your mercy and your kindness know no end and your blood has washed away my sin Jesus thank you Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, and now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. to live for you, lover of my soul, I want to live for you, lover of my soul, I want to satisfied Jesus thank you once your enemy and now seated at your table Jesus thank oh your blood has washed away my sin Jesus thank you the father's wrath completely satisfied Jesus thank you 
once your enemy and now seated at your table in Jesus thank you Jesus thank you oh we thank you these passages that we've studied over the last month. This conversation came the night that Jesus instituted the communion of the Lord's Supper. He and his disciples were in that upper room to celebrate Passover, something that you would normally do with your family, but Jesus chose to spend this Passover with his disciples, and I think saying, hey, this is my family. And now today, we as a family Part of God's family, we get to celebrate communion together. Before we do, I'll say that participating in the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who are part of the family. That makes sense. Those who follow Christ. For those of us here today that maybe have not yet made that decision to follow Christ, be baptized, and join God's family, the church, I would ask you, what keeps you from making that decision? And if that's you, you certainly don't have to leave or anything right now. I invite you to stay. Watch. Because this is a really special time for those that are part of the family. Maybe the Holy Spirit will be working in your heart as we do this. The scriptures encourage us to look in a lot of different directions as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. First, we're to look back with gratitude to Jesus and his death at the cross. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're supposed to look back and remember the, the price that Christ paid for our life. Next, we're to look around at the body of believers around us. Go ahead. Look around. This is your family. The body of believers that you share the supper with, it's something that we do together. It's significant that we share this meal as a community because sharing the one bread together is a sign of our fundamental unity. No matter where you go in the world, when you meet someone who is a follower of Christ, you immediately have a bond with them. It doesn't even matter if you speak the same language. They're part of your family. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Paul also tells us to look inward, to examine ourselves. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, 28, says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, it's possible today that you have come to the table without repenting of sins, especially sins that would impact the relationship even within the church and so to participate unworthily, Paul would say. So looking inwardly, we examine ourselves. We repent of our sins because why? We know that if we do, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We also look up to heaven where the risen and ascended Christ sits today, interceding for us as our great high priest. Hebrews 4.14 says that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think when we celebrate communion, we are approaching this throne. And we can do that with boldness. Finally, we look forward to the day when Jesus will return. 1 Corinthians 11, 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. The celebration of the supper serves as a proclamation of Jesus' death, which anticipates His return. That day that we'll finally see our King face to face. So now you can take this, this prepackaged elements. Again, chapter 11, verse 23, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul continues in verse 25, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, you are good. There is no badness in you. And you show your good by loving us. We remember the price your son Jesus paid on the cross for our life. Help us to move forward out of this place today with the cross center in our mind. We thank you for that grace and mercy. You know, it says on that first time that evening that they did this, they left with a song. And I thought that would be appropriate today, so maybe we could just sing that chorus of God is so good before we leave today. And we'll see you next week to celebrate Easter Sunday. God.